3: presented by AT&T connecting changes everything
1: brute force if it doesn't work you're just not using enough you're listening to software radio Special Operations Military News,
2: and straight talk with the guys in the community.
3: Hey, what's going on? This is Rad with another awesome episode of soft rep radio and i want to welcome you my listener to the show but first i have to let you know that in order for us to keep the fireplace on the lights on me on this podcast i have a merch store and it's at softrep.com just go to softrep.com check out the merch store download the app and then also we have a book club which is softrep.com forward slash book hyphen club go check that out, enroll in the book club, get something awesome sent to you, and just start reading something, you know? It'll be great, especially when you start collecting all your books, put them behind your podcast. (laughs) That way you have a background. Now, today, I have a special guest to talk with you about. We're gonna talk about explosives, we're gonna talk about real estate investment, and we're gonna talk about running a podcast and uh, dealing with tragedy, and And my guest today is Aaron Hale of the Aaron Hale podcast former explosive ordnance disposal technician you know aaron real quick was that army navy
4: i started in the navy switched over to the army i
3: jumped ship so to speak and with that i would like to welcome my awesome guest aaron hale to the show welcome aaron thanks for having me yes it's a pleasure okay for those that don't know aaron has a hard time visually seeing so he see he hears me he hears us But what I see is I see his jackalope above his door or his window. What is that animal with those horns up there? Can you explain that to me real quick?
4: (laughs) That is a black buck antelope. I actually went hunting after losing my eyesight. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, boot campaign, but uh, Johnny Joey Jones and I and a few other wounded veterans went out to an exotic ranch in South Texas, south of San Antonio. And it was pretty cool. It was a former... Army sniper, a former EOD tech, and right. one of the you know the uh, the guys on the range, and we all three went out, and it was a it was a team effort to get the reticle on that that animal. But I actually shot the smallest animal that week of all the other uh, you, know, hunt, you know wounded sure. veterans
3: and from the longest distance. So you had to aim small, miss small, like uh, Mel Gibson talks about in Patriot. And you, your vision is really just gone, right? You, you're not able to see. You're being team effort to put the reticle on the target, right? That's
4: right. These aren't prosthetic eyes. I no longer have my originals. Uh, these are yeah. supposed to be exact duplicates. The the prosthetist that uh, painted them apparently did a pretty good job because people commented on how good
3: looking my eyes are. Oh, yeah, I know you are. You know, I'm looking right at you. I got no beef. It's all good. And I would say that, you know, how old were you when you decided to join the military? What was it that, like, just said, hey, this is for me?
4: It's not as patriotic a story as most or some. Uh, It was more of an act of necessity, Uh, a a pivot point, a transition point in my life. I wasn't very ambitious. I grew up in kind of a, you know, cushy, happy Pleasant, you know, childhood, and mm-hmm. I didn't have a whole lot of work ethic and ambition. And when I got to college, everybody who knew how to work hard quickly passed me by, and I pretty much you know, found myself out of my butt uh, really quickly. And it was it was a very embarrassing time. I would gained a lot of weight you know, from too many liquid calories, and needed to find a path i needed to you know grow as a person mature and the military offered that that growth opportunity to become a better man and to get that tuition back i just wasted so i joined the the navy i wanted to see the world i loved to travel i decided then that i would be i would go to culinary school because i'd love to cook my whole family is a uh very creative, very, very artistic family. Uh, my creative spark was in the kitchen. Uh, so I decided I wanted to, to join the Navy as a cook, knowing full well that was not a glamorous job, but at least I had to get some OJT while I was doing my four and then getting out mm-hmm. and going to, col- right. going to school. Of course, eight years later, I'm still in the Navy. And,
3: you know, of course, plans change. Cooking in the Navy for, like, was there a specific, like, you know, the captain has to have a specific meal and you got that for him specifically? Is it like, is he eat just what's in the galley? Tell me.
4: You know, I do make decisions based, uh, I, I like uh, Colin Powell's 40 uh, 70 rule. You get it about, you know, you need about 40 to 70% of the information to make a decision. Me, I was just barely on that 40% line. <laughs> and decided, <said, laughs> I, I just weighed all the different options and I said, Navy's for me. I'll be a Navy cook. That's good enough. Let's go. Little did I know that at the time, Navy cooks were considered in the Navy much like hotel restaurant management on the civilian side. So I got shore duty in Naples, Italy on my first duty station. And the first thing I asked was, where am I going to be cooking? And I said, oh, no, no, no. You're working the barracks. In fact, because you're the new guy, you're going to be working the night clerk job at the front desk. <laughs> Literally. So, um, you know, it was definitely not what I was expecting. But, you know, I worked my way up to the uh, maintenance manager for the, the BEQ. So, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was escorting the the Italian local national, you know, public works guys. So all day long I was going in there and helping them you know, change light bulbs and stuff and just pointing around going come Como si come si dice? how do you say that how do you say that and I was learning Italian from these, these roughnecks and so it was pretty <laughs> pretty funny when you you travel around to you know, on your leave time to Florence or Sicily and trying to speak in napolitan
3: from a uh, you know a construction worker right who's teaching you slang and you're just like They're like, bellissimo. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it's
4: definitely not book (laughs) Italian. And you definitely definitely learn the stuff that doesn't come in the books first.
3: Now, how did you go from visiting Florence and putting in light bulbs to, you know, now I've transitioned from the cook that I thought I was going to be, you know, and then now I'm an EOD. You know, what was this transition that happened to you?
4: You know, it was just first I joined in a time of peace. In not, mm-hmm. 1999, and I spent mm-hmm. the f- four years in Italy, two at the uh, bachelor quarters, and then actually PCS'd only 45 minutes away to Gaeta, Italy, where I then got flag duty. I was cooking for the three-star, the commander of the Sixth Fleet, <laughs> so I was actually doing the right. cooking. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely not a hardship duty, but I was actually cooking, and when that ship was in port, it was pretty cool, because... They only wanted to eat breakfast and lunch, and then it's important. They don't want to stay any later. Neither did I. And the admiral went and had dinner out in the economy. So by two in the afternoon, I'd already hung on my uniform after cleaning up lunch, and I became an Italian. I went out there and experienced uh, in Italy and Europe, and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But like I said, hardship duty was not. And I just... Then, then, all of a sudden, we found ourselves in two wars. That's right. not 11 yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan, starting to kick off. Yeah. Yeah, so by over 304 we were doing our figure eights in our box, imaginary box out in the Mediterranean uh, as the flagship. But in everybody's, everybody has a job to do in the military, and everybody's job is important. I was still, uh, you know, my my job's important, but I was watching, I was watching this these operations on television, and I was hearing about it, you know, in the you know the mess halls and the, the galleries and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And so I knew that in the previous four years that I'd gained those internal values, the the hard work, you know, ethic, the you know pride in a you know, job well done. And I'd also gained that love for service to, you know, the external values, to, uh, you know, be a great teammate. And so I was, I came to that point where I was, I was like, my, my, my talents, my abilities were being put to their, uh, their best use here in, you know, in cooking for the Navy. So I volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. And I was, uh, of course, running an Army cell hall, this time for the hundreds of NATO troops, ISAF troops, out in Farah, Afghanistan. But that mm-hmm. that's when I met some EOD techs. This was oh six oh seven, and it was just EOD, everything about it. You know, the, the tight-knit brotherhood. Yeah. Baseball hats. You know, the technical aspect of it. <laughs> <laughs> blowing stuff up, yeah, yeah. Yep. No, but the fact that we were you know first responders on the battlefield saving lives, and I, right. I tell people that you know when I get my my first confirmed kill with an egg roll, I started. I decided I want to start saving lives instead. But <laughs> but that's how it, that's how it went. Uh, I was I was a cook in Afghanistan. I wanted to go sure. EOD, and I re- put a re- request through through the Navy. To go from culinary specialist to EOD tech. And they quickly denied me. They just said that, uh, that we don't take cooks into the EOD program.
3: Also, uh, my. They've not seen Under Siege, the movie with Steven Seagal, where he is the cook. I mean, do they not know that he's in the galley uh, just like throwing knives at the dartboard? <laughs> I'm like, really good with a knife. <laughs> this say no cook. Yeah, this is not a cook. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones, this is not a cook. Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. Bro. That's amazing. so you're so you go from cooking for three stars and admirals and then you go to Afghanistan and now you're cooking for the army and other ISAF forces who are coming through your, you know, your chow hall and uh, I'm sure they're grateful for every Every warm, yummy morsel that they could shove in their mouth and the extra little scoop you put on, I'm sure they're grateful. Our listener probably ate in your chow hall.
4: Yo, that was uh, that was pretty interesting, too, because when I got out to Farah and I was cooking out there, there was actually a couple of platoons of Italian
3: special forces.
4: So I got to practice the lingo i would learned Dope. in Italy out in Afghanistan.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. They probably
4: loved it. You know... I wasn't the problem. We had, I was, it was me and another Navy cook and about nine local national Afghans helping me in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And there's an old old timer named Aga. And he'd been, you know, working for foreign national, you know, like foreign, and he'd actually been a nurse at one time in an Italian hospital in Herat. So he knew a little bit, of Italian, but he only knew the curse words because, of course, that's all anybody ever learns. So. Right. <laughs> so this old Afghan dude is, like, cursing in Italian as the Italians come through, and they're coming to me going, can you tell him to shut up?
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: So uh, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that was pretty funny. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It, it, yeah, that, that would be... Words.
3: No, no, no. Not those Italian words, man. <laughs> no, don't say that right now, Cheech and Chong. No, not right now. You don't say that word right now. No. He's like, hey. No, 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 no. <laughs> Bro, so you're in Afghanistan cooking. The EOD still gets denied. How did you finally get EOD to pull you in? How did you finally get with those that crew? Well, that was... um it was after the deployment
4: i came back and i was then uh, stationed in uh, newport rhode island and my contract was coming up so it was either reenlist or get out and the navy navy had already told me they were gonna let me into the eod program everything can be waivered. nobody wants to tell you but uh they really didn't want me to go anywhere my rank and rate were were undermanned i wasn't even going to get promoted so i walked I uh, went over to the uh, army recruiter and uh, mm-hmm. just handed in my, uh, my service records. I am going to go with EOD. They said, welcome. And soon it was uh, changing uniforms and
0: changing jobs.
2: Play,
3: so you didn't have to go through a boot camp again when you crossed from the Navy to the Army.
4: They had this uh, pilot program they were doing uh, Fort Sill called uh, the Warrior Transition Course. It's like a uh, for prior service boot camp. All of the knowledge based stuff, none of the you know dogma, you know, none of the mm-hmm. indoctrination type thing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. what's the the drill sergeant going to do say, drop. You drop. I outrank you.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Respectfully. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah. But
4: uh, that's that sort of, you know, like, you know basic <laughs> rifle and stuff, how to throw a grenade, you know, orienteering, you know, land navigation, that kind of stuff. And then straight from there, it was to uh, EOD training. So it's kind of funny, even though, I didn't get that boot camp, break you down and turn you into a soldier right. thing. It was almost like I was infiltrating as a sailor in a Navy uniform. Right. But uh, <laughs> I got to EOD school and I was doing Navy cadence at the Army Detachment. And the first, <laughs> first sergeant was so bad, so pissed. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the, school, the school was tough. It was a yeah. high attrition rate, a lot, a lot of knowledge-based stuff. You know, There's a test every two to three days, and you got to get a minimum minimum of 85 on every single test, or it's a failure. And some of the the hits, the some of the questions, some, you know, the practicals and the, the, the written tests, they're 16-point hits.
3: Like, what's a question? Can you give me, like, one random question that you can think of that you remember at all that it asked you? Well, it's everything is you imagine what EOD's
4: responsibility is. I know, right? There's bullets to nuclear weapons. So there are all sorts of different divisions. You you start from the basics, like basic circuitry and physics. You know, what what goes into the physics
3: of fuse activation, you you know, setback? Like, why does it combust? And, like, why does the combustion combust? And what makes the combustion's combustion combustion? And, like, the whole thing all the way down to the basic... Strike the match and light the fuse, right? Like you're learning it all the way. Bro. Imagine
4: like your basic 40-mic mic round, right? What does 40
3: millimeter grenade round? Yeah. yeah.
4: What does it take to actually activate that? How many times does it have to spin? Rotations. Yeah. how many rotations that's right so mm-hmm. it, right it starts with physics right so those are questions like newton's first law and uh, all sorts of stuff and then it, it graduates up to nomenclature and order mm-hmm. identification ordinance identification all the way up to biochemical you know counter terrorism um weapons of mass destruction detecting radiation you know getting in hazmat suits and doing de- decontamination
3: uh setups so uh, it's this. so many tests so many questions you're totally just such a it's constantly just tr- keeping your mind the gym for the job mm-hmm. that's what they're doing they're, they're just like hey here another test and it's just going. so much that it's, so yep. High, yep. it's so high
4: high paced it's so high paced that you kind of you know <laughs> you you memorize what you need to memorize You you understand it well enough and then you take the test, you kind of dump the matrix, and you get ready for the next one,
3: right? And I hope to retain red or blue wire along the way. You're like, okay, was that the red or blue? <laughs> Did you ever stare at that situation and just be like, what am I going to snip here, or is that just is that too MacGyver MacGruber for me?
4: When, when would I sleep? Well, I mean, everything, almost everything, there is sensitive, so you can't take anything home and study. So uh, at close of business, would, we'd actually have study hall. So go to mm-hmm. go to school, then at the end of yes. the day, study hall. And then, yes. uh, you know, you'd leave all the material there and eat, relax, work out, whatever. And then you're so exhausted, you just kind of pass out. And then
3: next day, start all over again. And just repeat. What was one of the, like, hardest aspects that you didn't expect and what was one of the easier aspects that you thought would be harder when you went into EOD for our listener that might be thinking?
4: Well, the school Jordan. specifically, I thought it was going to be a lot more physical. And I was surprised just to get into the school, you have to take a bomb suit and a chem suit, hazmat suit test. And you have to be physically fit for it. And you have to stay physically fit to be in the field. However, the bombsuit test is less ab- about physical fitness as it is about how you can keep your head while under physical exertion. So you get in the bombsuit and you, you do you know, they smoke you and you just, they just get spent over the next you know, 45 minutes. But during that time, they're all also asking you memory questions. Their observation questions, the critical thinking skills.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And that's the test. And also, it's about not quitting. So, the first thing they did was have me pick up, it's like a 155 round and just follow them around as we went up and down stairs, around the, the parking lot. And I couldn't put it over my shoulder, I had to carry it like this and it would I would just start burn my arms start burning and then it would my arms just start melting until um it's on my wrists and then I'm just holding it against my thighs and then it's just sliding and sliding down my leg until you said do not let that hit the you know hit the ground
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
4: and finally we get to the point where it's resting on my toes and I can't get it back up and he says all right you're done. I said, No, no, I can get this thing back up. No, you're done. I can get it back up. He said, Sergeant Hale, the test was to see if you didn't quit. And you didn't. So you're fine. Let's move on. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, you're like, okay, uh this that this is a trick. You're, you're like, this is good. But then it was and then it was, you know, like I said, the real surprise was just how much information you had to learn and how quickly you had to learn. It's a very difficult school to get through, but I was surprised about the level of knowledge-based versus the physical
3: fitness stuff. Mm -hmm. Good insight, you know, and I'm sure that it just gets gets more and more, you know, in-depth as you fall more and more down the rabbit hole of the EOD program, you know. Is it really called the demon suit, the apparatus that you put on that whole bomb suit do you guys is it called the demon suit or is am i just hearing that on the internet the demon suit yeah i've heard it called the demon suit in a robot chicken cartoon about eod and he's he's like no we wear the demon suit and then the guy wants to drive the robot He's like, I did not just spend my entire career to drive this robot just to let some random guy drive my robot. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that episode. When- You're going to have to check it out. It's like, can I drive the robot? No, you cannot drive the robot. I spent all these years and training and skill set to drive the robot. You cannot just drive the robot. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs>
4: oh, I've never heard of it <laughs>
3: okay okay
4: i never really liked getting into it i mean you gotta (laughs) yeah we would have contests to see how fast my team could get me suited up and Uh we you know that's one of the like competitions again team versus team because it's it's definitely not a single person suit up thing you need your
3: team to get you in there yeah you're getting zipped up and like strapped up and like you're getting yoke put around your neck and you're getting the Helmet slapped down on your head, and uh, yeah, yeah. right, you're climbing into big it, fat, and they're lifting it up for you. Big fat Kevlar diaper <laughs> juggernaut. <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> After months of MREs, you need that thing.
3: Oh, bro! Especially coming from a chef who's now got to eat MREs and live in the quote-unquote demon bomb suit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's
4: new to me, but uh, it's a good name.
2: Play.
3: Now, let's just get to what happened. You know, how come, you know, you've lost your sight and, uh, you know, a lot of the injuries that you sustained. Uh, you know, we talk about you have a, such a good smile on your face and such a great positive attitude. And you decided to serve the country and even go further once, you know, it really spun off at 9-11. And it, you just felt the call to serve more, join the Army. I know you talk a lot on your podcast and it's the Aaron Hale podcast and you can find it on Spotify, Apple and everywhere. And we'll have it typed out in the dissertation on the website at SoftRep for my listeners. So you should go check out Aaron's, you know, podcast, read about how he's, you know, trying to always just be in a positive light. I was, that's what I was getting from just some of the, you know, things that I've caught off your webs, uh, since I've met you now over the last week or so, just looking you up, bro. (laughs) Well, I'll
4: tell you what, I do attribute the attitude to quite a few different things. One being the military training, all sorts of different reasons, military experience. It helped me get through post-military. Everything from just the saying, you know, embrace the suck, to things like my experiences with EOD. For example, you know, each of our three-man team would have this quadcon or tricon full of tools for all of those scenarios i just talked about mm-hmm. we'd have hazmat decontamination kit you know sets power tools and robots and bombsers. geiger counters
3: probably and
4: yeah. then we get on deployment and we have that jerv the armored truck and you can only fit so many tools so you have to do a bit of a triage and i you gotta leave some behind so you, you just figure on, you just bring what you most likely use, but you got to leave some tools behind. And then Afghanistan, most of our missions were dismounted. Yeah, there's goat trails. You can't bring a vehicle of any size on there. So it was what tools can I and should I pack on my back? And when you right. consider, you know, standard battle rattle, water, food, and all the other necessities, then EOD tools, it gets pretty heavy. We're doing the same job that we were required to do, whether we have our quad con, our truck, our rucksack, mm-hmm. and whatever we encounter. It was, uh, General Mattis said in his book, Call Sign Chaos you know, things being hard were never a good excuse for mission failure. So we can't use the excuse that I didn't have the right tool. I still got to do the job. So I'm, I'm doing the same mission with a block of C4, a spool of rope, maybe, you know, a grappling hook or something, and we'll have like a man-portable robot. But just now, I just looked at it, I left a couple tools behind. I still have a mission I had. I still have jobs. Yes. I'm a, I'm a soldier. Sergeant, father, son—have all these roles and responsibilities. So uh, now it's, that's part of the reason I I started the Point of Impact podcast. And you know, I was the incident in particular. It was eight months into a twelve-month you know, deployment. And this was for what year was this? This was 2011. So My second deployment as. a... Uh, in EOD tech, my third deployment in total and first time as a team leader. So the one that actually gets in the bomb suit, you know, the highest ranking guy on the team. So I'm the one that makes that, that long walk. Mm -hmm. And I'd just gotten back from my two weeks of R&R back stateside and still had the luggage in the back of the truck. And my team had just picked me up from the airfield, and we were heading back to our command outpost and see a Choi in the Zarei district of the Kandahar province. And I asked one of the Turks, what we'll does the Choi mean? He says, I think it means cemetery. So we're in the, <laughs> we're,
3: we're in the tombstone. In the, yeah.
4: You know, and it kind of felt like that.
3: Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs>
4: We uh, jumped into a convoy. It's a just a supply, supply convoy. We weren't on mission or anything. We were just heading back to our AO. And they called back to us from you know the lead vehicle and said we had to have something on the side of the road. And wanted us to get to work on it. So I tossed the, you know, the luggage off the robot and the robot out of the truck and it got to work. We found the same thing. We've been finding the entire deployment. It was pressure plate. An oil jug, HME, and nine-volt battery. So uh, the robot took care of the pressure plate, but it couldn't get the uh, jug out of the hard pack. I wanted to get some mm. evidence so we could set it up and try to get left of the bang on the timeline, you know, try to get some of these people before they could put more of them down. Right. Trail's hot, and so you're on it. And I jumped out. And I was carrying. It was a standard battle rattle because we'd already had the thing dis- dismantled. We didn't. I didn't need to get into the bomb suit. And I uh, started making my approach. About twenty meters or so from it is when my foot found the secondary device. Oh, I'm not sure how the blast. I don't know how it happened, but it almost completely missed my entire body, except for the my fr- head. Uh-huh. Uh, a, a little peppering on my leg, a piece of a, a splinter from the pressure plate in my hand. But mm-hmm. uh, the blast pu- like punted me in the air by hitting me in the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took both my eyes, it cracked my skull, I was leaking spinal fluid right out my nose. A oh, uh, wow. piece of the metal detector actually hit my jawline and ran along it and stopped just a few millimeters from my carotid artery and about enough plastic the, the doctor said to make a gatorade bottle cap or you know that was that was just in my neck mm-hmm. and i the lights had gone out my bell had been really wrong i'd landed on my knees and elbows but i was still awake i don't know about lucid but i was awake and the first th- and i thought that my helmet had been pushed over my face your face uh, so the first thing i was thinking was maybe a complex ambush mm-hmm. and that everybody in that convoy was probably looking right at me instead of anywhere else and my team were doing what they were supposed to be doing is clearing a safe route to me so the medics could get me out i'm thinking what's happening all around me and i need Is there might be other devices out here so I did <laughs> what I thought was the smartest thing at the time. Of course, my bell had been rung. I got up and I started... I first did the uh, the functions check. Wiggle the fingers and toes and, and knees and elbows. Make sure Everything them. seemed mm-hmm. to be intact. So I would just went to fix my, my helmet just to find that it was gone. My iPro was gone. My helmet was gone. And I thought, oh, man, this is really bad. My first sergeant's going to kill me for losing that. But... <laughs> Yeah, I really. <laughs> but I got up and I started walking back towards my truck so my team wouldn't have to come out to me. Of course, I had no idea where the truck was and I don't know where I was going. They grabbed me and dragged me the rest of the way. Medics got me. Uh, Medivac Chopper was in there with like four, 14 minutes. And I was back on my way to the airfield that I just came from. And within 48 hours, I was in Bethesda.
2: play
3: immediately getting taken care of and triaged and the whole nine yards of like what are we you're probably talking okay you were just assessing your situation you know you knew what was happening because oh man i could only imagine in your brain everything was still just going on you were still thinking like you said was i lucid or was what but when you went to touch your helmet and you just realized it's your face and your guys probably saw that i, I just first of all war as hell okay so, uh, damn, <laughs> just damn. So then what? So then you get to Bethesda, Maryland and you're at Walter Reed and they've got to do multiple surgeries on you. So you go through that rigmarole for, are you still dealing with surgeries today? Or are you pretty, pretty much good?
4: Uh, it took a few, but today I haven't, I haven't really gone through any surgeries in, in a while. The last ones being the uh, the cochlear implants, maybe in the future, a little more uh, reconstructive stuff. But um, I mean, the blast, had, it really burnt my face and torn it up in a couple of places. Uh, it actually fused it, like my right eye, because the blast came from my right to left and it, uh, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. completely took my right eye and actually fused the eyelids together. So I was doing this permanent, like, wink thing.
3: I see. And sure. then
4: uh, a piece of frag had run across from the bridge of my nose and gashed the other eye. And, but uh, they, they
3: couldn't fix that. Anyways, so- um, So nothing, you don't even have any color, any light or anything out of that other eye, nothing? They, again, they tried to repair it,
4: but they, they just, it wouldn't work. So both, it actually deflated. Like a great, Yeah. Uh, and so both these now prosthetics, it took a few surgeries and grafts, skin grafts to actually rebuild the, uh, the eyelid enough to hold a prosthetic. Mm-hmm. But um, The real trouble spot, I mean, that's just really cosmetic. Uh, the real problem was the cracks in my skull. And they had to take yeah. parts of my septum and patch it up, and, and, you know, they did so, and I got out, I was actually out of Walter Reed pretty quickly, and it was, it was a rough time, but after they'd patched up my face, there was really nothing for them to do. It was a tough time for
3: me. Yeah, and a lot of soldiers and sailors come home and don't put on such a, a recovery yeah. from... Things like this, you know? And so I just wonder, you know, how many folks can just, you know, smile? I'm sure that you get this all the time that you're inspiring. And I'm sure you hear it three times a day when you're out and about and anybody gets wind of anything that you had to do. It's like you're inspiring. Okay. So we know that. You know that. This is your platform to now use that light. Okay. And to tell these others out there that, you know, it's okay. Like you're awesome. I think circumstances happened. I'm so sorry that that happened. You know, you, you've you probably chewed on it a hundred different ways. You know, well, if it wasn't me, it would be Bill. If it wasn't Bill, it would have been me. Or however it happened, it's happened. Okay? You, you, you got over the why me's, I'm sure. And, and you've moved on. And uh, we just have a huge, you know, veteran community that listens. And, you know, outside of the veteran, civilian community. And a lot of people deal with post-traumatic stress. And, like, you know, they think life is hard. You know, Aaron? You
4: know, that... um one thing, it was the brotherhood. You know, it was all of those other warriors up and down the halls. I was sitting there in my bed, just like you said, doing the whole why me's, what if, right? And, yeah. and being pissed off. These cavemen with their, you know, low tech garbage, you know, stuff they pulled out of the trash, you know, to, got one up on me. And I was pissed, but there were all these other uh, warriors, and they were fighting their own battles, and, and they're still fighting their own battles. Walter Reed across the country. I don't have a monopoly on pain. I don't have a monopoly on pissed off. Who am I to say that mine is the worst? Right? Like you don't understand what I'm right. going through because you know you haven't gone through what I'm going through and that's in a sense true but it's it's a cop out excuse for just wallowing and i realized that everybody is still in the fight and i need to get in the fight too and like i said i have i have all these responsibilities these hats to wear and i just i just can't sit there and say i quit my family my my team members my brothers and sisters in arms they I am responsible to them and for them, and they have co ownership in my life. So if I ever decided, if I ever <laughs> decided to to quit, I'd have to yeah. do it. I'd have to get a majority vote by committee. You know? No. <laughs> and I don't think I have the votes. So okay, I'm,
3: you're not allowed to quit. See, that's the thing. There's just no quit. You can't quit.
4: I had to get going.
3: You got to keep going. You got to get going, you know, because there are so many hats to wear, you know, whether it's the father hat, the neighbor hat, you know, the, your own self hat, you know, for your own self, you know, you may have just enough for yourself out there, you know, and uh, wear that hat well, you know, and uh, just make the best you can with yourself. Now, you know, uh, like you said, like Aaron said, everybody has their own struggles. Everybody gets in and gets out of the military. They, uh, I've noticed that. Everybody donates themselves hundred percent able body and healthiest as possibly can be from like sports and athletic departments of high schools to come home to not being that, you know. And so,
4: you know, I also needed them not just to get me out of my funk, but I need to lean on them, yeah. you know, for the example. I needed to find you know find out how they were doing this. If I if I was going to be blind for the rest of my life, I decided then and there I was going to be the best damn blind me I could be. Right. But how right. do you do that? And first was what kind of attitude are these you know these warriors displaying? But it was after Walter Reed I went to the blind rehabilitation center at the VA in Augusta, Georgia, and I started learning how to do the cane and the accessible tech. And all that, mm-hmm, but I was mm-hmm. also as soon as I learned how to you know use the screen reader on the computer, I was I was on on uh, you know on the internet searching for uh, blind f- plus whatever anything right and right. I, I found a right. couple I found names kept a few names kept popping up like uh, Eric Weimair, his uh, first blind person to climb Mount Everest, and Lonnie Bedwell. is uh, is actually a uh, fellow Navy veteran, but he's uh, the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. And I just talked to him this week. Legit. (laughs) That's legit. He's also the only first blind person to kayak the Grand Canyon. And he just came down from climbing Mount Everest. So if these people can do that, I can get off my butt. You know, I can do something. In fact, I, I sought these guys out. I went climbing with Eric. I went kayaking with uh, Lonnie. I talked to this active duty blind ranger, Ivan Castro, who was working at Special Operations Recruiting Branch at uh, Bragg. And mm-hmm. and it, this guy, <laughs> he, I get on a call with him, and he talks about how he always makes it a point every every year to run the Air Force Marathon, the uh, Army 10 Miler and the Marine Corps Marathon and I thought oh that sounds really patriotic and kind of cool so I did the right. same I registered for all three of those somehow I got talked into a couple other marathons and within I was I was registered for four marathons a 10 Miler all within the span of 4 months and I never run anything longer than a 10K in my life so <laughs> That's kind of how I started my blind guide career. And uh, I, you know, I was I was getting ready for the mountains, and I was doing kayaking, I was going hunting, and I started speaking. They actually sent me to the EOD school. I started. I was. I was instructing for a while, and okay. I was. I was
3: making the best of it. So they can still use you, right? Like you said, there was a active duty blind ranger who was at like probably like a process of still active duty right they're still using him they were still using your mindset to come in and teach eod courses exactly. right exactly they, they still
4: i couldn't yeah. do the job anymore they don't even like uh bl- you know colorblind uh, in eod uh, red wire, blue right. wire green wire green wire blue wire <laughs> so uh, i could go to the schoolhouse and i could teach IEDs, I could teach best practices, lessons learned on the battlefield, right. that kind of thing. Right. And so right. I did right. that for about a year and a half. And, you know, the med board process is a long, long time. But when it came time to actually make a decision, I could have requested to do a co ed or continuation of active duty service, but I didn't have anything more to prove in uniform. And I was I'd actually i found i found something uh, I could I could live for outside of service, and also it was that that, that pain of nostalgia, being so close to the job that I, I could no longer do. I, I still love being in the community. I'm still, I, still, I live just down yeah. the road from the schoolhouse, and I'm still active in the community, but I didn't have anything left to prove to anybody else, and especially not to myself. So I retired. I took the medical retirement, but so... Um, mm-hmm. Was all these things were going on it was about four years after the blast and that's when a complication occurred that crack in my skull it apparently hadn't across the bridge of your nose right there yeah that that it had been patched but apparently not well enough because um, it was still a small leak of that spinal fluid and and leak you know a path out as path in and i contracted bacterial meningitis and uh, oh. I, was, I was i was it put me right back in the hospital it nearly killed me but in the process uh, the bacteria had uh stolen what was left of my hearing uh, that the blast hadn't taken so i was i was going deaf in days and <laughs> when the doctor was breaking the news to me i said doc you're telling me i'm gonna be totally blind and totally deaf. Are you telling me I'm, I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again. <laughs> Silver line and everything. Because my, my mom I and guess, my girlfriend at the time yeah. were in the room and I don't know, it was probably the hearing, but uh, I didn't hear them laugh.
3: No, they just, uh, yeah, they're, you know, as caregivers. Okay. Girlfriend, mom. Loving you, you know, being there for you. Uh, you know, uh, is that how it was when you got home? You had, was it mom home? Who helped you kind of like get back to yourself? Was it your mom? So what was wrong? Like, did you have someone home waiting for you? Was your girlfriend the same girlfriend from when you got injured? Or did you meet her after the injury?
4: I was married before the injury and divorced. Divorced in between the injury and the illness. The girlfriend... I had known for a long time. In fact, we'd known each other since childhood. Uh, Our mothers were both childhood friends. So we kind of struck up a a conversation and we'd had just a fantastic uh, first, uh, you know, she didn't know what she was getting into.
3: No, that's what I was wondering. That, you know, that's why I'm saying a caregiver, you know, or someone who has, you know, just some sweet empathy. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's all.
4: But uh, she was an absolute godsend during this illness because now uh, not only had I lost my hearing, but it also took that inner ear sense of balance, the the, the internal gyro, my vestibular balance, so I couldn't get on my treadmill. I couldn't even walk. I came home in a wheelchair, oh, and, yeah. and I'm sitting there at my my breakfast bar on you know, the counter in my kitchen, feeling sorry for myself again. You know, it's like it was like for four years. I was telling people about this strength through struggle, you know, triumph over tragedy, and it was like God had just said, "Well, prove it. You know, put put your money where your mouth yeah. is. Let's do it again." I was like, when when has this guy paid his dues? When is one enough enough for one guy? You know, right? But right. um, you know, I had my little pity party, six month pity party. But you no, know, the truth was that after a while, it just you can't. Maybe it's just me, but I couldn't just sit still, and I couldn't just wallow. It's yeah. uh, it gets boring, frankly. So I needed to get busy doing something. I did get back on my treadmill and I held on with an iron grip and I just hit the quick start button. Half a mile an hour. I was just walking. And then I would grab the trekking Good. poles that I used to go into the mountains with just to go to the mailbox and back. And that's how I got started. And eventually I was running again. And now I'm training for bad water.
3: And I'm going to run 135 miles across Dead
4: Valley in about three weeks.
3: Wow. Yeah, you did mention in an email that you have been training for Badwater and, uh, you know, like, hey, what's going on? I was like, that's awesome. So you're going to just keep going, man. I don't see you stopping, right? And how's your real estate going? I, I understand that you love real estate and that you dabble with, like, you know, a little wealth management.
4: Well, you know, what I do here is, and this was one of the things I also got busy with That uh, this 2015 when the meningitis hit. And I was waiting for the cochlear implant. It took forever. Took mm-hmm. forever. I had to wait for the infection to clear up. I had to wait for this. And my right ear was the first implant. It didn't work because it was more damaged on that side. And then the left ear, and it was over six months before I could hear another human voice. So part of the thing was I started cooking. And that was my, my kitchen therapy. I was just started cooking for Thanksgiving. And we yeah. invited all sorts of people. We even invited some, some of the students from the schoolhouse that were stranded. And I just threw all of you know, that into the cooking and stopped thinking about myself. And, of course, I started making desserts weeks in advance and fudge. And I want some. <laughs> Mi- Michaela, <laughs> my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she saw two things on my face. One, no, two things. One oh, it was a smile on my face. She hadn't seen in six yes. months. And two, the fudge was piling up. She uh, started sneaking it out. Like, I got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But she was giving it out. That's funny. She was giving it away. And people started coming back and saying, could we buy some of that from you? The capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. Of course. And <laughs> all of a sudden, we had a business, EODFudge.com. So we had this fudge <laughs> company we actually took off. I've been on the Rachel Ray show. We started a TikTok, grew it to like 150 thousand followers. As I, I did, uh, it was for a time I was doing Aaron Hales cooking without looking on TikTok, and cooking without looking. And that's, I don't know if you can see in the background my apron, my tactical. I do see tactical it. apron. And so I was, we were, we were confectioners, chocolatiers. And then we started earning, you know, we started making money out of, out of it. And we wanted to put this money into something, an asset that would, you know, so we didn't have to work, cook fudge all day long. And right. we started buying real estate. And we, what we did was we'd find some some busted homes, so we needed some TLC, we fix them up, we'd do short-term rentals, and we'd refinance out of borrowed money from private passive investors So people who want to invest in real estate, but didn't want to lift a hammer or deal with tenants or guests, we did, we do all the work. And a lot of these investors are fellow military members. And what we do is we, you know, we give them a good return, double digit returns to let us use their money to fix up these homes. We refinance into a more conventional loan, pay them back with their interest. And then we have a cash-flowing asset that we manage. That's right. It's fantastic, and the great thing about it is that we, we we turn you know eyesore you know these homes that would otherwise in the neighborhood we fix mm-hmm. up the neighborhood, we increase increase yep. property values, we inc- reclaiming and grow our our investors' bank accounts as as well as ours. And, right and. and that's a lot of the. You know, it was one of the big reasons I started the podcast Point of Impact with Aaron Hale, is because this is something. It's also something. This real estate model is something everybody, anybody can do, and you can be as as active or passive as you want to. Whenever anybody says you know investing in real estate, I know what a lot of people think of <laughs> is I don't want to be a landlord. Like, you don't. You don't have to. I'm not a landlord. I own long-term and short-term rentals, but I'm not a landlord. I'm an owner. I'm an investor. I don't. Even, mm-hmm. m- almost all of my involvement is right here at my desk and on my computer and on the phone. So I love it. I want to share it. I also want to share other things. My my mindset, how I get through these difficult parts, how I find answers, and you know how I stay and try to stay fit and all sorts of things how i can live my best life so i can make the greatest impact in my world
3: that sounds like a good legacy that you would like to you know leave with the world okay let's just put it that way as you say your community but your community is now worldwide because you know it's point of impact with aaron hale it's the it's it's a rated podcast you're out there putting it out there so you know, first of all, congratulations on moralizing yourself that way. <laughs> Long when we're gone, this conversation will be replayed. I just tell my kids, hit play of Facebook at my funeral, and you'll see all the pictures. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just hit play on all the social medias. You probably won't even run over the same image twice. So, I mean, you know, you know. With that said, putting yourself out there, you know, trying to make a good wake with your boat for others to like, you know, surf on or wakeboard on, and and you're the big ship making that wake. That's what it is, right? And you're the commander of your entire organization. It's you. It's Commander Aaron Hale.
4: Yeah, and that's, it's like uh, Invictus, right? I love that, I wanna get that tattooed on my chest, backwards so I can read it (laughs) if I had eyes. (laughs)
3: <laughs> In the back of your head, you could have them. I'm the
4: captain of my
0: face. You can put them wherever you want.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is. It's true. You know, when we feel as though we're being controlled by outside external forces, now there are a lot of things we we can't control. But when we give up the the ability to control our emotion emotions, our decisions, then we we are victims, and there's there's no recovery until you can take ownership of your own emotions and your own decisions. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, external forces, you, know, you can influence them, but you can't control that. But you can control the direction of your life. You can control how your day goes and the kind of life you want to live no matter what happens ahead. And that's what the most important thing is.
3: I love that. No, I do. I love it. Love you too. I think you're great. And I think that, uh, I think it's cool that technology allows you to have a conversation with us due to what you've dealt with, with the cochlear implant plant on your skull. Do you mind just turning your head to the side and like pointing to it? So if anybody's watching this on the YouTube, they can see the whole system. It's right there. It goes into his ear like that, and then it's attached to his skull. So it's conducting right through your skull. It conducts through the skull, right? Sure.
4: Yeah, it's it's uh literally there's I don't I, I don't know what it looks like underneath, but it's under the skin, attached to the skull. It goes into there's a there's a implant, of course. The external part mm-hmm. is the processor, which actually collects the audio like a hearing aid, but it doesn't amplify sound. There's nothing going into the ear canal because there's nothing. No one's listening. Um, but it, it takes that digital. Signal and sends it to this tether, this coil here, which is magnetized, and that goes right to my auditory nerve in the cochlea bone, and it sends that digital signal to my brain. And it's a lot like if it sounds a lot like if you call your friend on, and the friend is at at like a restaurant, and they put their phone on. The speaker and put it in the middle of the table. You pick up everything, kind of a wall of sound. Everything kind of mixes together. So it's it's definitely nothing like the real thing, but it's way better than the alternative.
3: Hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I'm, I'm grateful to have you on the show today. And I know I've had your time for over an hour, and we got to talking a little bit before the show. And I just think that you're great, and I'd love to have you back on the show and, and back and forth, and you know. In my Rolodex, if you knew what a, I don't know if you know what a Rolodex was from back in the day. I keep using that term all the time. Yep. <laughs> so I'd love to have you back on. We could talk about more, uh, you know, real estate, things along that line, how to, how to drive more wealth into somebody's pocket. You know, I think a lot of us would like to hear more about that. And, and I know that you're like, rad, 50 minutes into the podcast and only 10 minutes left and you get into the wealth management aspect of making us rich. Make the land too. Okay, perfect. So it's point of impact with Aaron Hale, who we're talking to. He is the podcast. And then, do you have anything else you want to uh, put out there, Aaron, that you would like my listeners? And we'll we'll write it out in the comments down below as well, so they can click on something if you have anything going Absolutely.
4: on. Absolutely, I'll be raising money for a very special organization, building homes for heroes. And when I'm you know, running this Badwater 135, 135 miles across Death Valley to the Mount Whitney portal. And I'll be doing it for an uh, organization that builds specially adapted homes for severely, severely wounded warriors. And they give them to them mortgage free. This house I'm um, in right now is a Building Homes for Heroes home. And I want to help pay it forward as well. So buildinghomesforheroes.org. And if you follow my podcast, Point of Impact, uh, I'll be sharing more about that process and, you know, my
3: training and, you know, the fundraiser to come. Perfect. And I just want to say, go check out Aaron Hale's podcast. Go subscribe. That helps us as hosts and interviewers, it really does. And if you go and just hit the notifications, don't forget to comment down below. Don't forget to, if it wasn't for you, there'd be no us. All of those things, you know, whatever Mr. Beast says, help us do that, we also. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm gonna shout out Mr. Beast, just in case he hears it. Because if anybody can fund you, it would be Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast, are you listening? But nonetheless, I wanna say, on behalf of Radio. My co-host here on the screen, Aaron Hale, the guy that puts me behind the microphone, Brandon Webb, who thank you so much. Go check out his books, Brandon Webb. And again, check out the merch store and the book club for softrep.com. And again, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. And with that, I say peace.
1: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Zumo Play.